Killing Type, a novel by Wayne Jones. Chapter 8. It was exactly 24 hours after the Easley murder that I received the following email message. Your research project will not end happily. More people will be killed. The papers will prate. But I will not be found out and your book will build to no denouement or climax or cataclysm of resolution. The murderer dragged away before an angry, jeering, relieved crowd while the police do their best to fight the temptation to just throw the trash to the dogs. Instead, your words will simply fall fall off, beginning from nowhere and leading nowhere. And while your desperate readers skip to the conclusion in which nothing is concluded, I will be driving solely out of town or lounging about in the comfortable quarters to which I am accustomed and entitled. How does one deal with something like that? My first reaction, objectivity and detachment, and the rigor of the scholarly mind for now assuaging and distracting the emotions, was to find out where this came from. How does this person know what I am doing? How can he be so confident that he will not be caught and that I will not succeed? How can he be so callous and brazen about the lives of innocent people? I am catching a slight hint of naivete in my voice, and I worry whether I am, am in way over my head. A conscienceless psychopath wanders the streets, and a hapless quasi-academic thinks he can do something about that, even if it is just to document the rise and fall. I go for a drive, hoping the cool August evening air will do something to help. While I am stopped at a light on Brock Street, I hear voices coming up behind me. Ignore them, I tell myself, ignore them. A cab full of students, all men, or approximations of men, pulls up beside me, and one of them says calmly, as if he is simply reciting a fact he has memorized from one of his summer classes, Hey buddy, you've got a piece of shit car. The cab proceeds when the light turns green, but I hold back, scared for some reason, beaten down, feeling unaccountably vulnerable. I care nothing for cars, and yet for some reason this dismissal of my trusty vehicle, relatively old but very reliable, bothers me. I don't understand it. I feel as if my feet have been taken out from underneath me, as if things I could always count on, I can no longer count on. This car is not what I thought it was. This town is not full of dedicated students who are respectful of others and have better things to do than to cruise around in cabs making unprovoked, frivolous statements about... The whole thing is silly, of course, but it reminds me how precarious my own security of self is, how easily I can be diverted from the quiet confidence of a trained scholar to the blubbering idiocy, idiocy of a consumer who is starting to wonder whether he should trade up to a newer model. I drive home quickly, park the old car, and walk slowly to my room. I lie down on the couch and just stare up at the ceiling. The silence and solitude help. Short bursts of thought still assail me, but with de decreasing frequency. Minutes pass, and I feel myself starting to forget the details of the incident in the car and beginning to concentrate on those of the email. I parse the words and phrases, rearrange, recombine, reconstruct, 
The trick is knowing just how much attention anything or event deserves. Is there something in this message other than the obvious? The killer claims he will kill again and will get away with the whole series. Should I reread to the power of ten? Or should I just forward the bit of crude and shabby confidence to the police and let them bumble away at trying to track the person down? My epiphany comes about the same time that I shift my weight on the couch, squirming to a more comfortable position. Selfishly, perhaps, I see a battle, one against one, the trained scholar who is trying to write the book and the killer, the subject matter, who is brazenly mocking the utility of my enterprise. Quote, your book will build to no resolution, unquote, he wrote. I see the challenge in those hateful words. My book may not build to anything, so he says, but I may still confront him and solve the crime. Am I reading too much into this? The book not succeeding, but the crimes in fact being solved? I picture the kind of showdown that I don't really want to happen, the hunted criminal turning on the hunter-writer, just when I am unprepared, bending down to brush that bit off my shoe, and then he has stopped, and when I write myself, he is no more than about three meters in front of me, and I know that this is either the time that I die, or the time for some extraordinary invent, invent, intervention on the part of God or evasive and direct action on my own atheistic part an existential man alone fighting. But I've gotten away from my point, which is, the killer wants to goad me, brandish the failure of my book as an incentive for me to keep on looking, to make a liar out of him. I have to admit that I am concerned about my own personal safety. Granted, this is a small town, and so the activities, even of a modest scholar, are perhaps relatively easily sniffed out by anyone with a modicum of interest, but I do wonder what else this killer knows about me. Email address, yes, also easy to find out, but does he know where I live as well? Does he know my habits? I hesitate to give myself airs or to encourage pathetically grandiose comparisons, but I heard a news report on the radio recently the gist of which was that one of the main ways to prevent a terrorist assassination is to avoid a regular schedule. Take a different route to work, get your morning coffee at various places, mix it up, as the consultant with the brilliantly white shirt and impeccable mustache put it. I admit to not doing that. I am, sadly, a creature of habit. I like my coffee just so and always at the same time, and certainly always at the same place. I scour my memory now, trying to find the obvious stalker during the course of my days, but my thoughts devolve to outrageous comical clichés. A man reading a newspaper but lowering it as I pass by. A woman smoking at a street corner, hiking up her collar and activating to pursuit when I cross. Another man, but you get the idea. Alas, even in the midst of the cartoon, a worry still tingles. Am I likely to be tracked down by a man who obviously lacks a conscience and who would not hesitate to kill? I am much less frantic the next day, quite giddy with a joie de survivre, in fact, and I carry out the regular morning rituals with measured luxuriousness that I generally do not have time and patience for. 
The razor plows its way through soapy white stuff while a distracted scholar tries not to smile and ruin the next pass. My mind starts doing a calculation not only of the amount of time that we humans spend every day on these activities, but also of the order in which they are done. From casual conversations that I have had with friends and acquaintances through the years, I know that there is a great deal of variation. The, the young philosophy prof at Toronto U shaved while he was in the shower, for example, and it saddens me that I remember that the head of the English department insisted on brushing his teeth before doing anything else in the morning. My own sequence then, as now, is floss, brush, mouthwash, shave, shower. I derive a certain comfort and security from this order for these rituals, and when some circumstance or other occasionally forces me to, ver to diverge from them, well, I feel quite disoriented, and a strong, insistent urge keeps me distracting me from my current engagement and reminding me that I should go back to perform the one I'm, I've missed. This morning I am perfect, but just on Sunday past when those damn dogs across the street had done their regular rounds of yapping and defecating at around 7.30, and the owners laughed heartily at something or other, all combining to get me out of sleep and out of bed much earlier than I had anticipated and needed, and the end result was a cranky and inattentive Andrew who stumbled into a hot shower before he had had breakfast or done any of the other necessary precedent actions. The day was just not right after that. As I am stepping out of the properly ordered shower this morning, the phone rings, and for an instant I consider drying quickly and rushing to give a subservient answer. I change my mind just as quickly, continuing in my leisure. In a moment of insanity a couple of weeks ago, I gave my phone number to the raver who just shut the poor man up to just shut the poor man up and give myself some peace. The details escape me, but I think the circumstances were that he was promising to keep me up to date on some facts or patterns associated with the murders. He discovered a website or a blog or some such thing, and he characterized the revelations as, quote, very interesting, unquote. He asked for my number, and I was as surprised as I was reluctant to give up this simulacrum of privacy that I fancy I entertain in my little room unreachable by both the unwashed and the civilized. It's coming back to me now, though, my conversation with him. He was particularly voluble on his own background, how he came to Nosting, even why he's ended up so angry all the time. I was shocked to hear him speak so forthrightly, frankly, because I never thought him capable of such introspection. He arrived here from Calgary with his family, a wife and an infant girl, about five years ago. I can't recall now whether his employer had transferred him or downsized or just outright laid him off for no particular reason, though I do recall that he was categorical about being wronged in some way. He worked for less than a year before he lost his job here as well, and then there followed a few years of odd jobs, under-the-table work, hard labor and the like, while he was often forced to be collecting welfare as well. The story turns into something of a country song after that. His wife has an affair with the owner of the garage where he happened to get work as a mechanic, and after he argues with her, and unfortunately hits her, 
She gets a restraining order and takes their child to the other end of town. Through some circumstance which seems to make him more livid than the loss of his family, the wife ended up with this truck as well. That, and I have to pay the fucking bitch $300 in fucking support every month, he said in that charming way of his. I wonder and worry about the poor man. One part of me is relieved that he has murders to occupy his mind, that he can channel his anger towards all aspects of those bloody facts, people dead, inept police, no end in sight, instead of the vagaries of his unfortunate domestic and personal life. Is it perverse of me to think that the murders serve as a distraction, that it is better for him to, to exercise himself about the incompetent investigation than to be stewing about his family? Doesn't a person have only a finite fund of mental energy, which in the Raber's case is better expended on anger about murder than anger about a, perhaps, conniving wife? I dry myself off and step out into the bathroom floor, onto the bathroom floor again, as if I am regaining refuge, the safety of terra firma. I quickly do the usual at the sink and head to the bedroom to get myself ready for a day which I have not planned yet. The phone rings again, and I pick it up this time without checking the call display. Hey, Andrew. Oh, hello, how are you? It's the raver. Good, listen, I hope I'm not catching you at a bad time. Silly boy, and of course he continues with barely a pause. I was wondering if you'd be up for right now, you know, getting together today sometime in order to talk about the murders, you know, like I was telling you about the other day. The reader who is surprised at my taking no more than a nanosecond to decide to comply with the man's request does not understand the drives that animate a scholar, the quest for knowledge of the virtual inability to resist any occasion that might move the research forward in even the smallest way. He rambles on a bit while I see that I am dripping onto the hardwood, but ultimately we agree to meet at that new place where I can get strong coffee and a sandwich that does not feature white bread or those atrocious wraps. He is dressed better than I have ever seen him, and I can't pinpoint why this bothers me. The shirt is a very elegant white linen, wrinkled to just the right degree. The shorts are a lovely faded blue cotton, and he is clean-shaven and more tan than I remember him from our last meeting. You look all set for summer, I say to him, before I am able to edit what comes out of my mouth. How do you mean? I mean, you're just right for it. Keep it short, keep it cool, I conclude, trying to affect the casual demeanor which is naturally foreign to me. Oh, yeah, right, he says, and laughs a little uncomfortably. So you've seen some patterns in the murders, I say, changing the topic and salvaging my purpose in coming out at all. Well, I can't be totally sure, of course, he says, and then takes a very demure bite of his muffin, morning glory. I am quite struck by the contrast in his demeanor from the loudmouth I have witnessed up till now. I wondered what it is that has quieted him down like this. Perhaps the social intimacy of being on an actual arranged outing with an acquaintance as opposed to the chance meetings he and I have had up till now. Or perhaps a genuine insight which has sobered him. He continues, I can't be totally sure, but I've been looking at the names of the victims, like, I mean, looking at the letters in the names. The letters? 
Yes, I know it sounds a bit crazy, but hear me out. I shall spare the reader the the, the deluded details, but he then launches into an incredibly contrived thesis about the last letters of the victims' names or some such drivel. It may have been some other letters from the killer's name or I don't know what. In any case, at the end of it, I find myself in the awkward position of having to pretend to give any credence at all to his ridiculousness. And somewhere inside me, I sigh disappointedly as I realize that his calm exterior does not really indicate or presage any concomitant alteration in his crazy, raving interior character. The, ra- the waiter arrives with exquisite-looking napkins and robing chunky utensils, and I sigh again when I realize that there is no way for me out of this engagement. I just must make the best of it. In fact, things go rather well, considering I make some polite, perfunctory inquiries about his theory, but I do believe that he puts two and two together, or rather less than that, and concludes somewhere in the depths of himself that he may have been overly open to suggestion or wild imaginings, or perhaps that an investigative scholar demands more than a little hint or coincidence here and there. The turkey on the brown bread is fresh and moist and adorned with a flavored mayonnaise which imparts just the right taste overall. I swill my beer like a viking, and by the end of the meal he and I are joking about things that have nothing at all to do with killing. After all the food has been consumed, the waiter arrives to clear away our dishes and to inquire if we want anything else. The raver, he does have a name, Wilson, and I exchange sad, tentative glances, neither wanting to be the first to commit the other to an unwanted extension. I smile, first at Wilson and then at the waiter, and indicate that I will permit myself one more beer. What is getting into me? Wilson visibly beams at this and babbles his own order for a rum and coke. Listen, Andrew, he says when the waiter is gone, let me just say that about the about the theory and all of that i'm not saying that it's the god's truth or anything like that it's just something i put together i mean i do believe that there is something to it but well i know that it might be a bit out there i smile and try not to make it paternalistic or condescending he catches me before i have the chance to say a word it's okay no problem you've been nice and polite he laughs a little more loudly than i would have preferred There's a lot of silence for the rest of our outing after that, though I don't think that it is the result of resentment on his part. At one point, I notice that each of us is unintentionally mimicking the movements of the other, a sip taken, a glass set down, a barely perceptible slouching down to just the perfect position of comfort into chairs which are evidently not made for regular human behinds. Well, he says with a kind of flourish after his glass has been set down for the last time, and both actions do have the feel of terminal punctuation. I think I should be heading off. Listen, Andrew, it was very good of you to come out and meet me about this. Thanks a lot. Not at all, I say, the apex of self-sacrificing civility. It was my pleasure. He smiles, stands up quickly to leave, and suddenly I am just left there alone. I have the odd feeling that I have averted something, confronted the enemy and emerged victorious, and I have no idea of the genesis of such crazy ideas. 
I shake my head at my own craziness and not seeing anything of any particular interest as I survey the room, I prepare myself to leave as well. I hold back for a few minutes, though, in order to be sure that Wilson has cleared the area.